Scott became famous for freezing to death in Antarctica. Columbus made history thinking some island was in India. General Custer's a national hero for not knowing when to run. All of these men are famous and they're also very dumb. History is made by stupid people, clever people wouldn't even try. If you want a place in the history books, then do something dumb before you die. Nobility are famous for no reason, Mary Antoinette enjoyed her cake. She caused a revolution when she would not share, and her husband lost his head for that mistake. Hindenburg was a giant Zeppelin His makers made a minor oversight Before they filled it up with explosive gas They should have fixed the no-smoking light Cause History is made by stupid people Clever people wouldn't even try If you want a place in the history books Then do something dumb before you die Tally ho! Obviously, I'm not a real Canadian since I'm daring to write this stuff. 
Canadians apologize when they're the ones being bumped into. And even when holding big protests, they'll dutifully wait for traffic signals to turn green before they cross the street. And they tend to turn away with embarrassment whenever voices are raised or a dispute breaks out, even when they agree with what's being argued. Well, that impudent Yankee Billy Bob Thornton once observed that Canada is like mashed potatoes without the gravy. Well, they're bland, all right, Canadians. But more than that, the world doesn't even think we exist, even except as dumb cliches like bright-coated Mounties. And that's for a real good reason, you know, because Canadians, by and large, are too insecure to just be who we are. After all, when was the last time your spouse said to you, Honey, let's go have some Canadian food tonight, hmm? Well, darn it, eh? There's a heck of a good reason we're so vacuous, and it comes from a past and a history we're never taught about. Because if we really knew where we came from and what little spalpeens conceived us, then sacre bleu, we might have to get up and do something like revolt. But, of course, only after checking first to see if it's legal. Surely I exaggerate? Well, I'll let you be the judge by listening on. For herein dwells today a small antidote to ourselves, a piece of that hidden history of what really brought about Johnny and Susie Canuck. For your edification, my book contains really interesting little historical tidbits that you've never heard of. Like, for example, the fact that John A. MacDonald, the first Canadian Prime Minister and that boozy corporate lobbyist, used to throw up in public all over his political opponents. So hold on to your hockey stick there, boyo, and listen on. But be warned, because to quote a gay Irishman named Oscar Wilde, who definitely wasn't like a Canadian, whoever looks beneath the surface of things does so at his own risk. Uh-oh, but now I've done it. I said risk. Now most of you connects won't listen any further. But to those who will, and to all your other folks, let's start with Chapter 1, which I call In the Beginning, slash Burn Repeat. In the year 1497, John Cabot stumbled across Canada by accident, and he wasn't even an Englishman, although he called himself one. And that confusion pretty much sums it up when it comes to being Canadian. Legend has it that beset by a shrewish wife and nagging creditors, Cabot, the Italian fisherman, whose real name was Giovanni Cabotto, exited quickly stage left. He got as far from home as he could in a tiny English sloop out into the vast, uncharted Atlantic until one day he found himself stuck in a humongous shoal of codfish a hundred miles wide. Well, somehow back in England, King Henry, not the one who killed his wives, but his dad, found out about all those fish, and he promptly granted Giovanni title to the cod as well as to anybody's land he found out west. I mean, that follows, right? The kind of behind-the-scenes land grab was an old European trick, of course, that King Henry had picked up from a degenerate Spaniard named Pope Alexander VI. In 1493, Big Al, whose real name was Rodrigo Borgia, yeah, one of those Borgias, Big Al told everyone that he owned the entire world as Pope because, well, God said he did. Naturally, everybody believed him back then because Europe was still officially Catholic, or so it's claimed. Pope Alexander was a completely debauched slob, just for your information. He was a hitman for his Borgia family, one of the biggest mobs in Italy. He also had 13 mistresses and fathered a child off his own daughter, Lucretia Borgia. Thereby, he proved his moral superiority to all those heathen savages in the New World. But that's a pig of a different color, as they say, and besides, let's not upset the McNally children just before their first communion. 
Meanwhile, back in the Atlantic, John Cabot, a.k.a. Giovanni the Wandering Wop, led his merry crew on a return voyage. The whole batch of sex-starved, smallpox-laden civilizers followed all those codfish toward the setting sun until they hit the shores of what's now Labrador. There they found a whole bunch of obliging and peaceful brown people called Biotax, waiting for them on the beach. Well, Captain Giovanni was invited to kiss the local Biotax Indian chief, which he did, and then he promptly ordered the guy's murder. Apparently, the Europeans just couldn't tolerate the chief's outrageous Nufi accent, or something. Actually, none of the Biotech people hung around for too long to plant any more kisses on Cabot's crew. They all just, you know, disappeared somewhere. Rumor has it the Biotechs wandered off or maybe were abducted by UFOs or something like that. Either way, that first bunch of brown obstacles to civilization vanished so thoroughly that none of them were ever seen again, leaving the land wide open and terra nullius for the pale invaders. And like, wow! There wasn't even a word mentioned about healing or reconciliation. Word got back to King Henry that there were no Spaniards in sight in the new land, so his delighted royalness gave John Cabot the green light to keep heading west, young man, brown people be damned, which they pretty much ended up being. Maybe it was all those fish sticks he had to eat or the down-home spoon-playing manner of life in Newfoundland, but Captain John never made it much further inland. Relinquishing the discovery of all those savages not us, but them, to guys like that widely Frenchman Jacques Cartier. Or maybe the two of them just made a deal to outsmart les Anglais. Anyway, Jacques Cartier showed up years later further inland at the mouth of a huge mother of a river that he mistook to be the oceanic passageway to China. People see what they want to see, right? But Jacques was annoyed as hell to come across more brown-skinned people, and they couldn't even speak French or say a Hail Mary for some reason. So Jacques whipped out his artillery, had them blessed by the onboard priest, and then proceeded to bombard the Indian villages along the St. Lawrence River with bits of iron, glass, and stones. This practice became known in Catholic Church circles as administering canon law. Canon, get it? The survivors of this holy canonade got the message pretty quickly and offered no resistance to what is commonly known as conversion. Soon the Indians who survived were all groveling and genuflecting to dead images and praying to fake saints when they weren't picking smallpox scabs off their kids' faces. Jacques Cartier was actually quite the mushy sentimentalist for a papist. Remarking on his new little wild friends, the seafarer wrote, The savages are people utterly unconcerned with wealth, and they share what they have with one another freely and naturally. Although they have not five sous between them, they are well-fed and happy, and they do no harm to anyone. They are far better Christians in that sense than are many of my own countrymen. Unquote. Well, naturally, such real-life examples of Jesus Christ posed an obvious threat to the Roman Catholic Church, and so they had to go. So like their Biotuck neighbors, none of those Christ-like brown people hung around for very long either. But before the Indians passed on to where Aboriginal converts to the faith seems to seem to always end up, one of the local natives imprudently showed Jacques Cartier the pelt of a cute, furry little creature. And the Frenchman suddenly saw big Sioux signs all over the place. The fur trade was on. Well, a couple of centuries and a million or so dead brown folks later, Madame de Pompadour, who was one of French King Louis' favorite bed buddies, made the snooty but very accurate remark that, quote, Canada exists solely to provide me with furs. 
and later with water and uranium and wheat and timber, etc. Well, that pretty much sums things up, although Pompey the Romper left out the necessary religious rationales provided by her fellow fur-trading monopolists, the Jesuits, whose gun-running and alcohol-dispensing priest, Jean de Brebeuf, aptly said before being barbecued slowly to death by some pissed-off Iroquois guys, quote, We must govern this country only according to what is of service to the Catholic faith and the fur trade, obliterating both the heretic and the savage. Well, Holy Inquisition, eh, Batman? But actually, things were not all bad, despite those creepy little black robes. The French did learn how to play hockey and lacrosse from the brown people who were still around. And they went on to excel as NHL goaltenders and inventors of muffins and the snowmobile. So, actually, no, I guess things were pretty bad. Nevertheless, not content to let anything remain French, the British promptly showed up in Canada in a big way soon after Jacques Cartier shuffled off to that big shooting gallery in the sky. By the year 1700 or so, rural Britannia arrived from south of that border that still wasn't there, where they had been warring in their own New England colony and killing off Indians with silly names like Pequots and Narragansetts by making them eat cold, greasy food and preaching to them a very dry kind of Puritanism. Those tight-ass Anglos also prevented the local brownskins from having sex, since that kind of thing can easily lead to dancing. Or did I get the order right? Naturally, the French couldn't tolerate seeing such severe, austere aesthetics imposed on the heathens, and so they decided to go to war over it. Okay, so I'm lying. Of course, the big fight between England and France was really about who controlled the mega-profits of the fur trade, which worked like this. The Indians did all the hunting and the trapping and the skinning of the beavers, and in return they were given a mirror or a knife for a hundred beaver pelts. The European traders then sold the furs to companies set up by some royal idiot somewhere who garnered an average 1,000% profit or something ridiculous like that on the entire transaction. Does that sound fair to you? Well, naturally, anybody who tried chiseling in on this Donald Trump-like mobster action received the business end of a bayonet pretty quick. This practice was commonly known as civilizing the wilderness, or in later days, free enterprise in action. The Frenchies liked the Huron Indians because they seemed to embrace Roman Catholicism, when in fact they just appreciated the free communion wine, which was so much better than the cheap grape juice the Prohibition Puritans dispensed. The British, contrarily, sided with the Iroquois because they went to war so much and they had really macho chiefs with big, cool war clubs the size of a Scotsman's pudenda, not an Englishman's. And so, invoking divine sanction, each side armed their own Indians for a battle to the death over who would get to kill and skin all those cute little beavers. Well, the Hurons lost, which is why you don't see any of them selling cigarettes on Ontario Indian reservations nowadays. The British were feeling pretty smug about the whole thing, as usual, having whipped their old enemies, les Français, once again. But just, that, just then, a revolution broke out back in Old Blighty, and the Puritans chopped off King Charles's empty head and got embroiled in a big civil war, thus giving the French breathing space. So the fight for who would own Canada went on and on. Until the Seven Years' War which you probably didn't hear much about in school except all the boring royal details. Because, to make matters worse for the British, the furs from Canada began running out around 1750. 
And those uppity English colonists around Boston were starting to rant about their unalienable rights and threaten, threatening to dump all the imported British tea into the ocean, making it quite undrinkable, even for Americans. So the Crown needed something to get everybody to forget about their nutty King George and unite her on God and country again, and so, bingo, wag the dog. Along came the Seven Years' War. Well, the French lost that one big time. They ended up surrendering most of the land they'd stolen all over the world to those other bandits, Les Rotes de Boeuf, in places like India and the Caribbean. Ah, sacre bleu, pas d'empire. And then to top off their bad luck streak, a few years later, their own King Louis got his head chopped off, too, by more revolting masses, which wasn't a bad thing at all. Not the best of time for French imperialists. But Canada went officially British after that, to the eternal ruination of the sexual and intellectual life of most Canadians. And jolly old Quebec remained an enclave for poodles, priests, and outrageous accents. But America went officially un-British thanks to help from the French and their navy, who really kicked limey butt. So things sort of evened out, which is kind of nice and fair, don't you think? Very Canadian. Now that a border existed next to Canada, lots of immigrants started showing up, running away from life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness down south. They called themselves the United Empire Loyalists, but the Yanks had a less complimentary name for them. Fearing political freedom and happiness, they sought out Canada and built a society there quite free of both. And so we move on. Where are we now? Well, remnants of Indians were only some of the headaches facing the Brits after they took over Canada. A few Anglican bishops, colonial governors, and fat merchant bankers ran the country. Hey, just like now. Which they divided into Lower Canada, being filled with French, hence Lower, and Upper Canada, where the Anglos gathered, and hence Over and Above. This little clique of governing fops was derogatorily known as the Family Compact, especially by their political nemesis, a bald-headed little Scotsman with a fiery tongue and very bad manners named William Lyon Mackenzie. He and his constituents of small farmers, eventually, uh, who elected Billy to the token legislature three times and got chucked out by the family compact three times, Billy eventually got so pissed off at the royal fops that he helped the farmers took up arms and they fought them in Canada's only revolution known as the 1837 Rebellion. Well, my great-great-grandfather, Philip Annett, was a farmer and a blacksmith at the time, living around the border in southern Ontario. And when he heard about the rebellion, he picked up the family flintlock and joined Mackenzie in this great endeavor, being an inspired Republican. Actually, the family rumor is that his wife was a bit of a battle axe, and he got out of the house as much as he could. When he left in just before Christmas in 1837, in the middle of winter, his wife was angrier than ever because he took the only gun they owned, leaving her defenseless against prowling Indians and wolves and missionaries. Anyway, the rebels lost. The details are kind of strange, but in a nutshell, in English Canada, Upper Canada, Little Mac, William Lyon Mackenzie, gathered a small army at a pub just north of Young Street today in Toronto, known as Montgomery's Tavern. As it turned out, the head of the colony, Sir Peregrine Maitland, happened to own all the pubs in the area, so he quickly learned of Mackenzie's plan of uprising. 
But unfortunately for Sir Peregrine, there was a bigger rebellion fomenting in Lower Canada or Quebec, so he sent off most of the army to fight them, and the local armory stood open and unguarded, as was Sir Peregrine himself. Well, little Mackenzie immediately incited his troops into action with the objective of seizing the governor, occupying Fort Henry, and declaring a republic in Canada. Well, little Mac was led, and his soldiers were led, by a former Dutch army officer named Van Egmond, who had fought with Napoleon and had been severely reprimanded for it. They had marched halfway down Young Street when suddenly, near what's now the Bloor Street Viaduct, they were suddenly confronted by a dozen figures approaching through the early morning mist. The scant handful of locals had taken up arms to defend Sir Peregrine, the Crown, and the stiff upper lip. And now confronting the rebels, they let go a volley of musket shot at the opposing rebel farmers. And then they turned tail and run. Ran away. Mackenzie's men returned their fire, but then tragedy struck, snatching defeat or at least stalemate from the jaws of victory for the rebels. Because Colonel Van Egmont, in the best fusilier tradition, had ordered the front rank to kneel, providing the second rank with a simultaneous field of fire. Unfortunately, the colonel had not had the time to instruct the men in infantry tactics. Seeing the front rank drop, the rebels in the back row concluded that everyone had been killed by the Tory fusillade. So immediately, Little Mac's army turned and ran back in the direction of Unionville. And that was pretty well the end of the rebellion of Upper Canada in 1837. Sir Peregrine's government exacted a terrible revenge on the revolting Canadians by deporting a hundred of them, sentencing them to life in Australia, which was judged to be a fate worse than capital punishment. Two of the rebel leaders, Peter Matthews and Samuel Lount, were hanged, although Mackenzie managed to flee to the United States, which he viewed as somewhat preferable to the gallows. My ancestor, Philip Annett, somehow managed to escape the hangman and return to his farm, deciding that there are some things in the affairs of men worse than putting up with one's own wife. Canada was then launched down a road that some call a system of law, order, and good government, and other calls, others call servile dependency. In fact, this is fact, in practice, they amount to pretty much the same thing. Well, just before the the, uh, little break where we're going to hear about the last Saskatchewan Pirates, we jump west a bit, because for some reason, pale Canadians prided themselves on their staunch Britishness even more after the aborted 1837 rebellion, and a silly conservative smugness and desire for afternoon tea descended on the people of what then comprised Canada like in the eastern half, right? Fortunately, all that banal rule Britannia bullshit didn't extend to the burgeoning territories west of those Great Lakes, a vast land peopled by Indians and a curious bunch of folks called the Métis. The Métis were mixed-blood buffalo hunters who were the offspring of Scottish and French fur trappers and those Cree Indian babes doing what comes naturally on those cold prairie nights. Real good, eh? West of the Great Lakes was a huge, unsettled territory in 1840, owned by nobody, except in the minds of a few London businessmen who possessed something called the Hudson's Bay Company, one of the biggest illegal land grabs in history. The Hudson's Bay Company was founded a century and a half earlier by a royal idiot and rip-off artist named Prince Rupert. Like, hey, who the hell ever elected him? Because after disgracing himself back in England by helping lose the Civil War for his uncle, King Charlie the Brainless, who became headless, the young bozo Prince Rupert got handed millions of acres of other people's lands in 1670. Now, how did that happen? 
Well, Rupert had a convenient cousin named King Charlie II, who had illegally restored the monarchy in England and vented his rage on those pesky Puritan who chopped off his dad's head by having their corpses dug up and burned. Really, that's what he did. Like, that'll teach him, eh, Chuck? Okay, so King Charlie number 2 wasn't the brightest light in the cosmos, but he did reward his cousin Rupert with all of that other people's lands, and the little bastard wasn't even a pope. The vast stolen acreage stretched from Lake Superior to the Pacific Ocean and was cheekily dubbed Rupert's Land. Uh, Like, that's a hell of a lot of buffalo dung and millions of acres to boot. Quite the reward for being such a loser. Anyway... After that hanged or deported the rebels of 1837, the bankers and bishops who ran Canada East gazed longingly at all that land out west and, drooling like kids in a bakery, decided that all of its acreage had to be British, too. So they promptly handed over those millions of acres to a single corporation, you guessed it, Rupert's Hudson Bay Company. And then they shipped some tight-ass Church of England missionaries out west to soften up and make stupid all of those in-the-way Métis savages and half-breeds. Well, that was a bad idea. We're going to find out in a minute after you listen to our next song from the Arrogant Worms, known as The Last Saskatchewan Pirate. We'll be back after that. I used to be a farmer and I made a living fine. I had a little stretch of land along the CP line. But times went by and though I tried, the money wasn't there. And bankers came and took my land and told me fair is fair. I looked for every kind of job, the answer always no. Hire you now, they'd always laugh, we just let twenty go. The government, they promised me a measly little sum. But I've got too much pride to end up just another bum. Then I thought, who gives a damn if all the jobs are gone? I'm gonna be a pirate. On the river Saskatchewan Cause it's a heave ho hi ho Coming down the plains Stealing wheat and barley And all the other grains It's a ho hey hi hey Farmers bar your doors When you see the Jolly Roger On Regina's mighty shores Well you'd think the local farmers Would know that I'm at large But just the other day I found an unprotected barge I snuck up right behind them And they were none the wiser I rammed their ship and sank it And I stole their fertilizer A bridge outside of Moose Jaw Spans a mighty river Farmers cross in so much fear Their stomachs are a quiver Cause they know that Tractor Jack Is hiding in the bay I'll jump the bridge And knock them cold And sail off with their hay Cause it's a hee-ho Hi-ho Coming down the plains Stealing wheat and barley And all the other grains It's a ho-hey Hi-hey Farmers bar your doors When you see the Jolly Roger On Regina's mighty shores Well, Mountie Bob, he chased me, he was always at my throat. He'd follow on the shoreline, but he didn't own a boat. But cutbacks were a-coming, so the Mountie lost his job. So now he's sailing with me, and we call him Salty Bob. A swinging sword, a skull and bones, and pleasant company. I never pay my income tax and screw the GST. Screw it! Albert down to Saskatoon, the terror of the sea. If you want to reach the co-op, boy, you gotta get by me. Cause it's a heave-ho, hi-ho, coming down the plains. Stealing wheat, barley, and all the other grains. It's a ho, hey, hi, hey, farmer, party doors. When you see the Jolly Roger on Regina's mighty shores. Arrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrr
Well, pirate life's appealing, but you don't just find it here. I've heard that in Alberta, there's a band of buccaneers. They roam the Athabasca from Smith to Fort McKay, and you're gonna lose your Stetson if you have to pass their way. Well, winter is a-coming, and a chill is in the breeze. My pirate days are over once the river starts to freeze. I'll be back in springtime, but now I have to go. I hear there's lots of plundering down in New Mexico. Cause it's a heave-ho, hi-ho, coming down the plains Stealing wheat and barley and all the other grains It's a ho-hey-hi-hey, farmers bar your doors When you see the jolly roger on Regina's mighty shores It's a heave-ho, hi-ho, coming down the plains Stealing wheat and barley and all the other grains It's a ho-hey-hi-hey, farmers bar your doors When you see the jolly roger on Regina's mighty shores when you see the Jolly Roger on Regina's Mighty Shores. And we're back. That's the Arrogant Worms, uh, singing for my country, my where I grew up, Saskatchewan and Manitoba. And that's why this next part of our tale is quite close to home. We're talking about the move out west as the Empire tried to get into the territories of the Indians and Métis and led to what's called the two Métis rebellions. The other attempted revolution in Canada also got crushed by church and state, but we're keeping the banner flying, right, folks? So anyway, as the British Empire tried to move into the West, they sent out their English missionaries, the Anglican Church missionaries, to soften up and make stupid all those in-the-way savages and half-breeds. But that was a bad idea. Because for one thing, those Western hombres were tough dudes who didn't want to be converted, especially to Anglicanism, of all things, since the first thing the English clergy did was to order a halt to any rolling in the hay or late-night conjugals with Indian women. Ah, mangez la merde, cochon d'anglais. Hope you all know what that means. Well, not surprisingly, it soon became open season on Anglicans around the central Métis hangout in what is now my hometown of Winnipeg in no small part because Catholic missionaries were already out there stirring the pot. Damn it, those black-robed, pederast bastards really get around, don't they? Naturally, all those half-breed gun sites were quickly trained on the Canadian government as well, since Ottawa clearly didn't savvy the desires of the mostly French-speaking Métis to be left alone with their Cree babes and buffaloes. Did I say that right? Babes and buffaloes, yes. Things went from bad to worse, and naturally, a little war broke out, which is always a good thing for bankers and politicians. The trouble for les Anglais was that there was no fast way for them to get their troops out west, since the country lacked, guess what, a national railroad. Hmm, did somebody say problem, reaction, solution? Enter the Canadian Pacific Railway, commonly known back then as the Government on Wheels since so many prime ministers and cabinet members were its lawyers and shareholders. Not like now, of course. Smirk. Oh yeah, sorry, but I forgot to mention. During the on-again, off-again dispute out west, Canada was officially declared a nation by some more pallid-skinned rich guys in 1867. But it wasn't really Canada yet, just four eastern provinces and boring ones at that. Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, Quebec, and Ontario. Anyway, back to the Canadian Pacific Railway, the CPR. No, that doesn't stand for cardiopulmonary resuscitation, although the CPR did revive the waning political fortunes of a soon-to-be-named alcoholic and his odious minions. 
The CPR needed lots of cash and land grants, of course, because hell, all those fat bankers couldn't spend any of their own money, for God's sake. So enter the railway's chief lawyer and lobbyist, John A. MacDonald, a notorious drunkard and corporate bagman who also, in just coincidentally, of course, became Canada's very first prime minister. Don't you hate all the stupid predictability? Anyway, to help out his bosses, Big Mac fomented a war right away with the Western Métis through his agents and the ever-obliging Roman Catholic Church, which has always loved to play both sides of any conflict. And naturally, the Papists held their usual we-are-God sway over the mostly French-speaking Métis gun-toters. Well, sadly for the backroom boys, the war didn't come off for some reason, much to the consternation of the CPR shareholders, who'd been promised rapid funding from the government once the war erupted. After all, those dashing red-coated bullet catchers for the Bank of England needed railroad construction to get out west and save Canada from all those bearded Catholic terrorists. And if you think that's silly, it gets worse. In 1870, a zany prophet named Louis Riel emerged from out of the Métis hordes to proclaim a provisional government in Winnipeg consisting of woolly-faced guys in slouched hats who definitely didn't drink tea and read Chaucer. Louis was only slightly Métis, as a matter of fact. Winston Churchill, whose very hot and sexy American mother Jenny was a quarter Iroquois, actually had more Aboriginal blood in him than did Louis Riel. I guess that's why old Winnie kicked Nazi butts so well in World War II, eh? But as for Louis, well, I suppose the guy was just another wannabe Indian who was in the right place at the right time. Anyway, to make the whole tale even stranger, before Louis could lead his revolution in Winnipeg, he spent some time in a Montreal loony bin, where he claimed to receive direct instructions from God, which, of course, made him a very bad Roman Catholic. But in fact, all those heavenly signals prepared him well for taking on the crown of England, which, of course, is a business as equally as nutty as the Vatican. For a while after proclaiming his Métis Republic, Louis Riel somehow solidified his power and outmaneuvered Big Mac politically, and nearly toppled the new Canadian government. Looney Mace- <laughs> Messiahs won, corporate drunkards nothing, may we. And Louis did all that even though he didn't even speak a word of English. Weird, eh? And not too bad for a nuthouse inmate. But don't gloat quite yet. The Métis provisional government eventually got smashed, worse the luck, in no small part because the Métis soldiers who guarded Louis Riel tended to wander off all the time in search of their babes and their buffaloes. Now, I know what you're thinking, so stop it. Defenseless and unrepentant Riel got out of town one step ahead of the hangman, who eventually got him, but hold on. And law, order, and the stiff upper lip moved in to set up shop in the Red River settlements. The Métis bided their time, though, which is easy enough to do when your daily activity amounts to hunting, tossing buffalo dung, and playing the fiddle. And Louis Riel even got himself elected to the Canadian Parliament. After that, by a disgruntled French electorate in Winnipeg, until the Ontario Constabulary tried arresting him for being so impertinent. They didn't catch him because he took off from the House of Commons in Ottawa and ran faster than they did, proving that even back then Canadian cops cops were fat, stupid, and hung around in donut shops too much. The pause between all of this Métis impertinence gave Big Mac and his CPR backers time to think and plot. What we need, they muttered, is a master plan. Like, you know, a way to lock up all those savages once and for all so we can build trading posts and cities and strip malls that sell shit. 
I've got it, somebody yelled, although probably not Johnny McDonald, who is usually passed out drunk somewhere. How about we do a law called the Indian Act, which is still around, by the way, just in case you holier-than-thou Canadians are tempted to feel smug. The Indian Act will make every Indian a Métis, quote, wards of the state in perpetuity. In other words, legal prisoners of that imaginary thing called the crown forever. That's right, Mr. Numnot's PhD expert, forever. And, continued the backroom boys, how about a national military force to keep all the Redskins in their place? Called something like the Royal Northwest Mountain Police, read RCMP. And special concentration camps to isolate and make sick and kill off all those brown people, called Indian reservations. And here is the real piece de resistance. Let's finish off all the brown people's children with special Indian residential schools where the savage youngsters who survive, only about half of them, can be turned into miniature British geeks at a tender age and provide lots of after-hour fun for a horny priest to boot. And it all happened right on schedule. Enter the G word. That's genocide, boys and girls, a Canadian-style genocide. Our homegrown slaughter wasn't a simple bang-bang extermination like south of the border. That would have been too much, far too too honest and impolite for Canadians, as well as an inefficient method for the English. The Canadian Holocaust, and I'm sorry, Meyer, but you didn't own the term, that Holocaust not only eradicated the Indians, but ended up producing as many brown corpses as the American bloodfest of the South. By the time the Western Métis revolted again in 1885, all of those Indian gutting laws had been approved by a compliant, lovely white Canadian Parliament. And yes, you guessed it, so had millions of bucks in interest-free grants to the CPR and oodles of free land to build a railway that would send the ready and waiting troops west in the next contrived war with the Métis known as the Second Rebellion. Johnny MacDonald had a big mouth, and he couldn't keep anything a secret, which, of course, comes with being a drunkard. No Alcoholics Anonymous back then. So soon everybody knew about the CPR agenda and started raising their eyebrows a bit, the way Canadians do now and then. But Big Mac was a master of propaganda, and he did have a good knack at a comeback. Knack, good knack at a comeback. You see, I rhyme. For instance, once, while in a drunken stupor during an election campaign debate, McDonald suddenly vomited all over the stage where he was debating a political adversary. But without missing a beat, he exclaimed to the shock audience, You must excuse me, ladies and gentlemen, but whenever my worthy opponent speaks, I can't help but become sick to my stomach. Well, Big Mac used the same rhetorical skills to bamboozle the Canadian public to support the war against terror out west, which of course was needed by a badly debt-plagued Canadian Pacific Railway. And he got a lot of help from Louis Riel himself, who had returned to Winnipeg by then with a zealot's fire and incited the Métis to take up arms and arrest any settler who wasn't with them, especially if they spoke English. Well, naturally, the Roman Catholic Church helped to mess things up for the Métis. Under orders from Rome, a local bishop named, named Taché did all he could to stir up and set up Riel by promising him backing from the church for his little revolt. But, of course, the help never came when the caca hit the fan. Bloody papists. One of the unlucky sods who had raised Riel's ire was a fervent Ulster Protestant, one of our guys, yeah, named Thomas Scott. Scott denounced the oath of allegiance to the provisional Métis government, demanded of all Winnipeggers, and not inaccurately, he saw Catholic conspiracies under every bed. 
However, the lad, after all, was a boot boy orangeman, and so poor Thomas Scott didn't favor subtlety. He publicly announced that he'd personally shoot Lou Riel the next time he saw him. Wrong thing to say, boyo. Scott was the one who was punctured with lead on Riel's direct order and on trumped-up charges. And that was exactly what Big Mac back east needed. So the second Métis war was on. A whack of troops, plus every redneck honky with a homemade rifle, soon climbed aboard the Canadian Pacific Railway and chugged west on those convenient new railway lines, cheered on by most Canadians outside of Quebec, where naturally everybody was rooting for St. Louis Riel. Tabernacle. The entire government military contingent was led by an aging Colonel Blimp character pulled out of forced retirement named General Thomas Middleton, who didn't know his ass from an infantry training manual. Defying all military logic, and in the same manner as another not-so-brilliant strategist, General George Custer, Tom Middleton split his force into three columns in the face of an invisible enemy and chugged off into unexplored hostile territory without any hard intelligence or reconnaissance. Smart, eh? Well, once General Blimp got to Winnipeg, he set out into the vast Wild West to hunt down Riel on foot. Well, shucks, can you guess what happened next, boys and girls? Middleton and his unbloodied troops got their collective orange butt kicked almost immediately by the Métis sharpshooters, who tended to hit and run during the night when they weren't picking off all those green Canadian recruits from a safe distance during their daytime marching. All of this caused General Middleton to go into a profound sulk that almost lost the government the war at the outset. The Métis fighters were led by a Che Guevara character of natural guerrilla warfare cunning named Gabriel Dumont, an enormous buffalo hunter who could take the smug, loft, take the smug look off a Brit at 200 yards with his rifle that he affectionately called Le Petit. Gabriel continually outgeneraled Middleton and made a bigger ass of the general than he already was, which was no small feat. Unfortunately, Gabriel Dumont and Louis Riel didn't see eye to eye on how to fight the biggest empire in the world. By then, St. Louis was quite insane being devoutly religious and the recipient of many cryptic and quite private messages from the Almighty, including, it seems, on how to conduct warfare against the British Empire. Of course, we only have Riel's word for that in the manner of any know-it-all priest or uh, born-again evangelical bunco artist who tells you, hey, trust me, I've just spoken with the big guy. So divinely inspired, Louis Riel instructed Gabriel Dumont to cease his guerrilla tactics and stage a face-to-face honorable war against the cannons and gatling guns of the British because, well, God wants you to. Uh, Okay, Louis, replied Gabriel, who must have figured advice that crazy had to come from heaven. So the showdown that tested God's ability as a military technician tactician, happened at a little place in Saskatchewan called Batoche. And gee, I wonder who won that little set to. The Métis soldiers were clearly not as impressed with Louis and God as Gabriel Dumont was. And so before all the shooting started, they not unwisely dug rifle pits rather than frontally attack the Brits, as St. Louis kept ordering them to do. And as for Riel, he made a complete ass of himself during the battle, running around waving a cross and commanding the bullets to drop to the ground, which they didn't do, of course, but I guess you knew that. On the other side, General Middleton still hadn't overcome his lethargy, and he was so bored and demoralized, or both, that he didn't even use his heavy ordnance against the scattered Métis riflemen. Instead, he sat glumly in his tent and wrote letters home to his wife during most of the Batoche battle. 
Eventually, an irate government officer acted very un-Canadian, and he took matters into his own hands. He ordered a bayonet charge against the Métis. Soon the field was carried by rule Britannia to the stirring refrains of a Gilbert and Sullivan chorus. Well, Louis Riel had chosen a martyr's end by then, which may explain his weird behavior during and after the battle. For rather than take off south to the U.S. of A. with Gabriel Dumont and the Métis survivors, which he could have easily done since the Brits never mopped up after the battle, Riel immediately surrendered himself to General Middleton, who had finally emerged from his tent after the fighting was all safely over. Louis expected a divine intervention to vindicate him, but naturally, it didn't arrive. Clearly, the Métis Messiah still didn't get the message. God is an Englishman, bozo! Napoleon once said something similar when he noted, God is on the side of the biggest battalions. But of course, Bonaparte had a God complex himself, so go figure. In the kangaroo court set up by the feds to put Louis Riel on trial, his own lawyers argued that the poor guy was clinically insane and therefore should be reprieved. But Big Mac and his big money backers back east needed a Métis corpse with an election on the horizon, and the verdict was already in. Besides, Riel helped his enemies once again by sacking his own lawyers and arguing that he was perfectly sane and deliberately treasonous to the perfidious crown of England. Eh bien, take that, you English pig dogs! So that was that. Goodbye, Louis Riel, the first and unfortunately only member of the Canadian Parliament ever to get hanged. And just in case all you suave history majors think that Canada finally outgrew the sentiments of that dark chapter of its history, the rope that hanged Louis Riel was proudly displayed in a front hall glass case at the Royal Canadian Mounted Police headquarters in Regina until the spring of 2007 when trendy political correctness took over and had it removed from public sight. I guess it was no coincidence that that was the same year that we forced an apology for genocide from Canada, huh? Coincidence, I guess. Anyway, I hear that the rope that hung Riel wasn't actually destroyed, but just stuck in another less obvious display cabinet, so nan you Frenchies. The big winners of the Métis Rebellion were, of course, the McDonald Conservatives and their bed partners, the Canadian Pacific Railway shareholders. Stuffed to their greedy gills with all the cash and acreage they wanted, the railway honchos went on to own most of the land around their tracks, which conveniently reached the Pacific Ocean just after the rebellion was squashed. And with all that land, the CPR real estate moguls owned the best property and politicians in Canada West, and are still raking in their mega-profits today. And that, of course, is what the whole thing was all about. Now we've got about 10 minutes left, and then I'm going to not go to the present, because we don't have enough time. I think next week and in the weeks to come, I'll read more from my book, History of White People in Canada. But just a few little vignettes. One of them being what happened when I was a young boy. I call it looking for them. My dad tells a story of how he disappeared one day when I was only five years old. It turns out I wasn't lost at all, but searching for someone. It happened at that bit of down-home chintzy hype Canadians call the Calgary Stampede. For you uninformed folks, that's where cowboys and other real men abound and prove they have balls by trying to lose them, literally, by riding on the horns of pissed-off Brahma bulls for tons of idiotic and fat applauding tourists. 
Well, that rodeo shit didn't interest me much that year that we attended, even though my brother Bill and I were decked out like Latter-day Hoplong Cassidy's in our chaps and spurs and cardboard cowboy hats. Too innocent to feel ridiculous as I started around like Wyatt Earp, I remember being profoundly disappointed at not seeing any real live Indians at the Stampede, since all the brown-skinned guys were dressed just like me and all the redneck noise and the standard cowpuncher shit. Man, I wanted feather bonnets and tomahawks and bloody scalps dangling from their belts. Anyway, as quick as he can spit tobacco, I vanished into the crowd as Dad, who was supposed to be watching me, was off smoking somewhere. He and Mum spent a number of what I'd like to hope were panic-filled moments, searching for their cute and irreplaceable wee Kev and coming up empty. Dad says they were about to sound the general alarm and bring in the Mounties. Yeah, like, that would have helped. When he spied my cute little butt in my unmistakable cowboy chap sticking up in the air outside some tourist Indian's teepee, the top part of me was inside. Dad grabbed one of my legs and hauled me out into the light of day. Giving me his make-believe pissed-off look he only donned when Mum was around, my father demanded of me, What the hell were you doing in there, Kev? And I lisped back at him, I was looking for some real Indians. Well, as a matter of fact, I still am. Which explains some of my history. And jumping later in the book. Do we have enough time? Yes, I think we do. By the way, websites, murderbydecree.com, republicofkanata.org, Kanata, our village, where the people sit as one. Well, I was a kid for most of the 1960s, missing out out on not only real Indians, but all the cool anti-war protests and rock concerts and unrestrained sex. Of course, even if I had a practice unrestrained sex, I would have passed being raised a Presbyterian. That decade ended for me perched awestruck in my grandmother's living room in Winnipeg, watching on the idiot box as a shadowy figure named Neil Armstrong pretended to pristinely step onto the surface of the moon as he was filmed by a camera whose angle indicated that it had already been placed there. Hmm. So in a way, that kind of official make-believe was a good introduction to the 1970s, which, as a decade, was, for Canadians, a series of similar illusions and ultimate disappointments. Those years got off to quite the bang with the War Measures Act hysteria, which you may not know about. Then things went kind of flaccid since guns and jailing without trial and Trudeau sneers were a hard act to follow. The 1970s tried to emulate the previous decade, but failed. In the summer of 1976, for example, well, Trudeau Sr. was still in power, he did another liberal act of freezing everybody's wages, but not prices, naturally. In response, a million Canadian workers got mildly upset and did a militant general strike for a day across the whole country, which changed nothing, of course, besides introducing me to my first wife, Judy. And those defeated hopes set the stage for the moribund 1980s and the most hated politician on our history, Lion Brian Mulroney. Brian who? Some of you younger listeners may be asking. Mulroney was a corporate sleazeball from English Quebec who was Canada's equivalent of Ronnie Reagan and Maggie Snatched the Children's Free Milk Thatcher. And the guy talked and looked creepy too, the kind of greasy, smooth-talking freakazoid who flashes porn at you from an alleyway. What Mulroney, in fact, displayed was grossly indecent corruption, even by Canadian standards. 
He openly welcomed bribes from corporate lobbyists. His prime minister's office had an official policy of tacking a 15% surcharge on all government contracts for the sake of the prime minister's private bank account. But that was all just the petty crime. At the bidding of his bosses in Washington and the International Monetary Fund, Mulroney smashed the protectionist tariff structures that had safeguarded Canadian jobs for generations and forced Canada into its first major free trade agreement. Against, and again through incredible turpitude, manipulating and sacking judges, stifling the press and bribing everybody in sight. And it went on and on like that, which led, of course, to the present ridiculous situation we have where China now pretty much has bought up the western part of my country and runs all the politicians, especially Mr. Trudeau Jr., who not only emulated his dad brought in a Junior War Measures Act, but sold off the whole country to China in something called the Foreign Investment Protection Act, which now allows even China to station its troops on Canadian soil. And so... That's what we face. That's why we have the Republic of Canada, which we're going to go into in more detail and bolster ourselves with laughing at the enemy in a way that puts the emphasis first on what we're going to do next, not what they, whoever they are, are going to do. That's why we're here every week, and that's what we'll do continued next Sunday when we're on the air. You can follow all of our work, murderbydecree.com, republicofcanada.org, and you can Read what I've been reading from. Ordering on Amazon is called 1497 and so on, A History of White People in Canada or the Caucasian Healing Fund. And that term actually is taken from the Aboriginal Healing Fund that the murderers in church and state doled out to the deserving Native children who survived their genocide in the residential schools. If they shut up and wouldn't sue them, they got a bit of money called the Aboriginal Healing Fund, because, of course, money heals everything, right? Especially from the people who murdered your relatives. So we need a Caucasian Healing Fund, don't you think, folks? Next Sunday is going to be the eighth anniversary of the forming of a republic. Bone up on the discussion next week. Republic of Kanata, K-A-N-A-T-A, republicofkanata.org. Check under breaking news for the latest stirring announcement. We did this last week. And prepare yourself for that discussion online and more fun truth of Canada's real history in a humorous vein, but also in a vein that activates you to take back your nation. And this, of course, is a model to people all over the world and our Republic Alliance who are part of that movement. Now, we're going to go out on another arrogant worm song from the West. It's called Ontario Sucks. And as you'll notice, us smug Westerners, We believe, according to the song, that the only place in Canada that doesn't suck is Alberta and, of course, Winnipeg. And I hope you enjoy the song. I hope you've enjoyed today's show. Write to me, Republic National Council at ProtonMail.com. Here are the arrogant worms. Stay strong, stay clear, and stay laughing.
I hate the Sky Dome and the CN Tower too. I hate Nathan Phillips Square and the Ontario Zoo. The rent's too high, the air's unclean, the beaches are dirty and the people are mean. And the women are big and the men are dumb and the children are loopy because they live in a slum. The water is polluted and the mayor's a dork. They dress real bad and they think they're New York and Toronto. Ontario. You know, actually, I, I think I pretty much hate all of Ontario. Oh, yeah, me too. I hate Thunder Bay and Ottawa, Kitchener, Windsor, and Oshawa. London sucks and the Great Lakes suck, and Sarnia sucks and Turkey Point sucks. Moosey sucks up to Ontario to visit Brian Mulroney. He beat me up and he stole my pants and he put me in a tree. I went to see the Maple Leafs and got hit in the head with a puck. I don't even know how they did it. I mean, I was playing the organ at the time. sucks and Alan Fitch sucks. Ontario. You know, now that I really think about it, I, I think I pretty much hate every gosh darn province and territory in, in our country. Well, except Alberta. Oh, yeah. I love Alberta. Yeah, it's really nice. Lots of cows, trees, rocks, dirt. Ooh, ooh, ooh. But I hate Newfoundland because they talk so weird and Prince Edward Island is too small. Nova Scotia's dumb because it's the name of a bank. New Brunswick doesn't have a good mall. Quebec is revolting and it makes me mad. Ontario sucks. Ontario sucks. Manitoba's population density is 1.9 people per square kilometer. Isn't that stupid? Saskatchewan is boring and the people are old. And as for the territories, they're too cold. And the only really good thing about the province of British Columbia is that it's right next to us. Because Alberta doesn't suck, but Calgary does. Baby boy, the prince. Time on cash, my roll. Extreme entertainment. Oh, oh, yeah. This is the way I live. 